next edition of Establish the Edge. I'm doing a solo podcast, a little bit of a Q&A, ask people to send me in some questions, which I will cover on this stream. Um, I have overtaken using the Establish the Show background, even though this is not Establish the Show, but they, they can deal with it. That's 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 what we're rolling with. Um yeah, so we've got some good questions this week, some of which involve landscaping, of course, but most of which are DFS and a few best ball questions sprinkled in. Before I address those questions, do I want to talk a little bit about contest selection? That's something I've been struggling with this year. You know, going into last season, I really kind of fell in love with the 200 person small field tournaments, really like the strategy there. And that's still the case, but I play so contrarian in DFS that. I sometimes wonder if I'm doing myself a disservice by not playing fields that are a little bit larger and give me a little bit reward for when I am right. Because I'm playing so risky, I need a certain level of reward to be paid off in order to justify the leverage stances that I'm taking. And that's something I've talked about in Establishing Million with Drew Dinkmeyer that I really have a tough time not consistently making that leverage play from the top to the bottom of the lineup where, you know, you make a couple leverage plays and you're like, okay, I'm done. Now I'm going to play, play chalk, just play the best plays. But then I'm like, eh, you know, this is good leverage. This is good leverage. And it's just hard for me to not just keep stacking up leverage on top of leverage. So what I did last week was I played the Wildcat, which is more of like a 5,000 person field. And I think that was too much of a stretch going from these really small fields to 5,000 person fields. So what I did this week to adjust is I'm playing contests like the Juke that are those small field tournaments I was playing in the past, exactly the same, but then I'm going to enter that exact same lineup into the Spy, into the uh, $150 three max that they have. The name is eluding me right now on DraftKings and then similar setup on FanDuel. So I'm basically eliminating my highest stakes entry, which I used to do like, let's say three max, you know, three in the 777. And then one like really high stakes entry. I'm eliminating that one high stakes entry in order to be able to play more teams total across a few of those, you know, small field contests, the juke, the seven, 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 and then also be able to dupe those five to six small field tournament teams in tournaments that are like a thousand person fields, just to give me a little bit more upside because of the contrarian level at which I am playing. So just wanted to talk through that a little bit. I know a lot of people have questions about bankroll management. We're going to start with DFS, though. Uh, a lot of good questions this week. Two questions around stacking that I wanted to talk about. Uh, David asks, which specific factors help determine when to double stack and bring back? Skinny stacks and bring back, game stack, etc. And then Ryan Hodge, shout out to Hodge, good dude in the industry, said, I have been seeing more and more sharps, pro players in the 4,444 and other contests not bringing back some of their stacks. Any thoughts on this? So what's difficult with the whole stacking conversation, and I want to be clear about this, is there's not a right answer in a vacuum. This is all context related. There's no go-to correct answer because this is completely dependent on what the field is doing and what your field size is and the payout structure and all these other factors have to do with it. It's the same thing like saying, you know, Devontae Adams projected at 25 points in a vacuum. We don't know whether he's a good player or not because 
is the field rostering him at a 40% clip or a 15% clip? It's a big difference. So those contextual factors matter. And there was a good podcast, the Lowell's podcast with Peter Overset and Brian Hooper, where Brian Hooper mentioned, you know, unless you've got like this really sophisticated setup where like you're, you know, maybe simulating an entire you know, DFS contest and you can see the ROI of specific lineups in that, to a large extent, we are guessing, you know, and when I say we're guessing, I mean, what we're saying is at we need to figure out how many points the correlation is worth over the projection. So if I'm playing Devontae Adams and I want to play Aaron Rodgers at quarterback because I have Devontae Adams, but at the same price, you know, we have Kyler Murray projected for three points more than Aaron Rodgers. Is the correlation with Devontae Adams worth sacrificing three points of projection? Now, it's even more complicated than that because you're thinking the range of outcomes on the specific players, but we have to make a determination there. And that determination, in my opinion, has a lot to do with the field size and how the field is playing. And when we went back and looked at how the field was playing in the Millie Maker, very different contest than what Hodge is referencing, but what we saw was the field was not bringing it back enough. In other words, the teams that were finishing consistently at the top we're bringing back on a stack or stacking more frequently than the rest of the field. So there could come a day when the field stacks too much and we would say stacking is actually minus EV at this point because the field is doing it too much. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. So in general, I'm still pretty pro stacking and bringing it back. But as far as the specific factors that matter, I think field size matters a lot. You know, if I'll play the Thunderdome once in a while, which is a 50 person field. I will sometimes basically have two game stacks. I'll have players from two games and that's it. And I'm really trying to reduce the amount of things I have to get right. It's such a small field tournament. I don't need to be perfect. I want to reduce the amount of things I get right. So field size matters. Whereas if you're in the million maker, I kind of want to hit the pure nuts. I want a huge ceiling performances out of everyone. So let's take a look at, you know, a team I did last year was a triple stack for the Houston Texans that I played in a small field and a team that you know almost won I think it was like the luxury box one week. And I I triple stacked Watson. And people were like, was that too much? And the reason I didn't think it was too much was one, I, I did it with like Brandon Cooks, Will Fuller, and I think it was Darren Fells as a cheap punt tight end. So just going through my mindset with that particular stack was, and what it essentially came to fruition. First of all, I like the cheap correlated tight end play almost always. And Salary matters a lot too, where the ceiling on the stack, you know, it's based on value. So a 2,800 tight end, I, I don't need a huge performance for. And I think Darren Fells got there on like one play, like like a random wide open touchdown, which is all you need for a cheap tight end. So the salary of the players matters a lot in terms of, you know, if you're stacking Kelsey and Tyreek Hill at 8K each on DraftKings, they both need to hit like 30 plus points in the Millie Maker. And that just doesn't happen that frequently where they're both hitting 30 plus points. But if you've got two 5K wide receivers, you know, one can hit 20, one can hit 30, and you're fine. So keep in mind, keep in mind the cost of the stack. The other thing in that small field, I was hopeful that one of Brandon Cooks or Will Fuller would go nuts and the other one just needed to be fine. And I knew the other one, I knew if the stack hit, that's probably what would happen, right? It was unlikely if the stack hit in a big way that one of those guys would tank my lineup, even if I knew both of them wouldn't hit their true ceiling. And that's all you need in a small field tournament because you don't need everyone to hit the nuts. Now, had I made that lineup 
in a 10K plus field tournament, I might have been more cognizant of, okay, I need to pick the correct pairing with Deshaun Watson between Will Fuller and Brandon Cooks because I need a true ceiling. And then I'm better off instead of playing the guy that I think's worse, I'm better off replacing that with someone who's uncorrelated who can also hit their true ceiling in a game. So, you know, the field size I think is a really important factor. I think the amount of projection you're sacrificing is really important. And that for me, uh, honestly, at this point, it's a little bit of a feel thing. If I'm sacrificing a couple points of projection or value, I think that's fine. If I'm starting to sacrifice like five plus points, I think, you know, we've probably gone too far. As far as the bringbacks specifically, it has a lot to do with if I think well, if I think there's like a good play in general, like last week's a good example. I was on the Cowboys stacks. I thought were good for small field tournaments. And I brought back with a Patriot, even though it was risky because I thought there were really good leverage plays on the Patriots as is. So it made sense to correlate it. So if that happens, you want to do it, but you don't want to like force guys just because just to say you brought back, like you don't want to bring back a bad play. And you also want to think about you know, does this offense need to be pushed? Like I felt like the Dallas Cowboys offense last week needed to be pushed because if the game script doesn't go away where they're throwing a lot or for the game script to go the correct way where they're throwing a lot, you, you need the, the opposing offense to put up points. And it was kind of a weird game where they got pushed with no one on New England doing that well, but they did get pushed and they had to get pushed because otherwise they'll just run the ball a lot. Whereas a team like the Buffalo Bills, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, these teams have such high pass rate over expectation and such high team totals. They're going to score so many points on a given week, like almost regardless of what the opposing team does. You, you're not as forceful as doing that bring back. So kind of thinking through. So um, I think that's a big part of it. And as far as the skinny stacks go, like also thinking through the offense, like how concentrated is it? Minnesota, you can double stack even kind of expensive pieces because they're so concentrated. Whereas some other teams, you know, it's a little bit difficult to pick out and you're taking on a lot of risk the more players you add if you get, you know, the wrong guys. So think of how concentrated it is and how they're getting there. You know, quarterbacks with lower pass volume that get there on efficiency and because they run a little bit, I'm going to single stack these quarterbacks. I'm not going to feel the need to absolutely double stack these quarterbacks. So, Okay. A question from Matt Inslee that cuts to the core of me. If you follow me lately, I've been really tilting my tight end, just the tight end position in general. Matt asks, do you feel it is better to fade chalk TE or stick with chalk TE and get leverage elsewhere in small field GPP, specifically a small owned punt tight end? Yeah, I struggle with this one where part of me says there's so much variance at tight end like do not play the chalk. There's too much variance. There's always another option. And the other part of me says, tight end a lot of times doesn't matter that much. Like don't take on that unnecessary risk of fading, you know, Ricky Seals Jones. You know, you just eat it and you can differentiate elsewhere because it's it's not worth it. But I think ultimately you want to get away from the chalk. And even the Ricky Seals Jones example, I mean, he ended up getting up to like 50% in small field. And again, this is a big difference between small field and large field. Like if you want to eat 18% Ricky Seals Jones, like that's high. It's kind of gross, but like, it seems fine. You're not going to cut him out of your MME mix, but to play a 50% rostered Ricky Seals Jones, 
in a small field tournament, I do think you're better off looking for leverage elsewhere. The thing I'm trying to do is find that leverage with maybe another punt tight end and just pick up some points there. It's hard because I don't know how many points realistically I can pick up if I go, if I play like a shitty punt tight end just because no one plays them. Like how many points am I picking up? But at the same time, you know, the mid-tier tight ends that have a ceiling, I've really been getting burned on those. And part of that's bad luck. We've seen some big performances from Mark Andrews, Kyle Pitts, not on the main slate. That would have been huge for the main slate. So I don't know, tight end's been a pain in the ass for me thus far. Uh, Rich asks, I constantly find myself on the right players, but never in the right combos to make meaningful profit. Have you ever been in this position? How do you adjust for it? For example, last week, Mahomes, Stafford, Cut, Mixon, RSJ, Cook, JT, Hendo, burned by Higgins, DJ Moore, and Justin Jefferson. So, yeah, the combo thing, like, honestly, is just a decent bit of luck. I don't really know if there's much you can do to adjust for it. Uh, there's another question, too, that I think this ties into. Um, there's two other questions I want to tie this into, which just kind of comes down to our player you know, diversity in our player pool each week. Callum asks, with single entry, three max entries, how concentrated should we be with players and stacks? Macro question, but week six examples, allocations with Stafford. Had, he had Cup, Woods, Higby across different teams. And with Dak, he had Amari, C. Schultz. I tend to spread evenly with lean low ownership percentage versus taking stands. Might be wearing too many condoms. And Kodiak asks, could you speak on strategy for three max contests? When playing three max entry, how many quote unquote core players do you include on all three teams? Are they vastly different? I feel like I'm building a 75% cash oriented teams at times by locking too many have to play guys. Thanks, Mike. So all those questions for me, like it's, it's really risk tolerance as far as how you want to do things. If you're frustrated with not hitting the correct combos on things, you could make an argument to go two different ways. One, you could say, tighten up the core of players. And then when you hit, it's very likely that one of your teams is going to find the correct combination of players, but that's going to increase your risk where if you don't hit on your core of players, you're pretty much toast for the week. And neither of those is inherently better or worse. So what I try to do though, is really kind of channel where is my edge for the week? And it's different each week. So I might have weeks where I have a player in all my lineups or a stack that I make very specifically in all my lineups because I really am convinced like that is the edge. I might have other weeks where my edge is fading a certain group of players and playing a certain group of players. But within that group of players, I'm not going to force myself to say, okay, you know, of these you know, low-owned 6K running backs with high upside, let's say there's three of them, I'm not going to force myself to pick the one I think is the best if I think they're all equal. You know, if they're all roughly the same play, if I all think they fit into my edge case for the week, I'll ro- rotate those through my different small field teams. So it really kind of depends where my edge is at. And something I've talked about before is I like to zoom out and try and treat each week as part of like years of playing DFS. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes within a week we get too conservative because we want to cover all the angles for a certain week. But if we zoomed out and we said, okay, we're going to play a hundred slates over our lifetime, we might play this slate where we'd really focus on our biggest edge case and we play that a little bit heavier. And if it didn't hit, we'd be able to accept that knowing that's one out of a hundred slates. If each time over a hundred slates, I maximize my edge case, 
I'm increasing the variance within each one of those. But over the course of the 100 slates, my EV should be actually a lot higher because I'm always focused on the biggest edge cases. Now, there's some hubris there in assuming we can identify the best edge case each week. But I do think it's worth accepting sometimes that you're not going to cover all the angles and that if you really think something is a particular edge on a week that you can go all in on, and maybe not all in on that, but you can go pretty heavy on that and just kind of accept your loss if it doesn't hit. I think this happens with you know, the chalk good value sometimes where we're like, ah, I got to play some teams with this really good chalk player because if I don't, I'm just going to lose all my entries. And I get that if you're taking the mindset of like just this week, just by itself. But if you zoom out, it might be like, well, if I make this fade every time on each of these 100 slates over time, it's worth it because one of these slates, that guy's going to tank and I'm going to just absolutely crush and obliterate that slate. As far as within stack specifically though, uh, it's a similar thing. Like for me last week, I was on the DAC stacks and I did the same thing. I rotated through all of them. I had a DAC Amari Schultz. I had a DAC CD Schultz. I had a DAC Amari CD. And that played very well with New England where you could bring it back with Hunter Henry, Jacoby Myers, Nelson Aguilar. Like there were lots of different combinations and I didn't think any was particularly that much better or worse than the rest. Uh, on a different week, you know, if, if I did think that not only did a stack project as super good leverage, but a particular receiver in the stack projected as great leverage, I'd be fine using that wide receiver in each one of those. Okay. So let's see here. I think that was most of the DFS. Oh, okay. This was a really good one from DM Spung. He said, how are you handling the increased focus on leverage plays by the field? The Saturday-Sunday theme seems more impactful where gap between leverage and chalk is significantly narrowed. I do think it's getting tougher at DFS and especially, you know, as ETR becomes more popular, it's like somewhat a self-fulfilling prophecy some weeks where we say, oh, Odell Beckham's, you know, on Wednesday, look at this combination of our projection and field ownership. Like he's a great leverage play and everyone sees that and then come Sunday morning, he's popular. I mean, we saw that with one week with Odell in particular, where he went from a good leverage play to at lock would have just been an incredible fade if you knew knew what the field exposure was going to be ahead of time. So how do I handle that? The first thing, I really try not to build too much early in the week. I don't want to get anchored to specific plays because I, I know if I get anchored to guys it's, you know, it's just science. It's just science. <laughs> you're going to get, it's going to be harder for you to make your correct decision Sunday morning. If you've been like, oh, I really, I built these Odell lineups. I really liked them. Now people are going to play them. It's really easy to rationalize just sticking with that when with, when we should be making the best decision at the time with that information at the time, which is if you had started building lineups right then and there, you'd probably be like, Odell got steamed too heavy. I'm off him. He's a fade. So I really try not to build too much early in the week. The other thing I, I try and do, the other aspect to this, and, and our ownership projections at ETR, like we're constantly updating them throughout the week. Earlier in the week, we're waiting a little bit more on our default algorithm. By the end of the week, you know, we're kind of manually baking in some of the market sentiment a little bit more, and the recency bias is definitely still there. So I know Adam does, Adam and Wiggins do a phenomenal job giving me feedback on those. Uh, particularly Adam and 
I think we get them in a really good spot, but it takes time throughout the week. So just know that earlier in the week, it's a rough outline of how the field's going to play. I think you get a good sense for what people are going to do in cash. But as far as, you know, the specific tournament leverage plays, you do kind of want to wait till Saturday morning, Sunday morning to get those. Uh, but the other aspect of DM's question was the gap between leverage and chalk is significantly narrowed. And I don't know if I've seen that be the case. I've definitely seen some leverage guys get steamed where they're no longer good plays. But I feel like the chalk's still getting played pretty heavy. As I mentioned in small field tournaments last week, Ricky Seals Jones was 50% in some lineups. Even with late swap, we had Kareem Hunt nearly 50% on a week where there are a lot of you know, decent 6K-ish running backs. Like there are a lot of good running back plays. He was clearly the best in a, you know, from a raw projection standpoint. Like we had him as a phenomenal value and you should have been playing him like in cash and whatnot, but he was very, very highly played. So I don't know. I think that we're still seeing quite a bit of of chalk condensing in these small field tournaments. So I'm going to continue to play that accordingly. I do think in MME stuff, you know, especially with the higher price chalk, they, they seem to get smoothed out a little bit more in MME where they could be 40, 50% owned in a small field tournament in MME, they're 20 to 25%. And honestly, that type of tournament's not my cup of tea. You know, that's something Dink covers on Establishing Million with us each Saturday. And I think he does a better job of explaining that. As I'm doing this video, if you guys can smash the like button, putting it up on the screen, just, uh, it helps us a lot. If you hit the like button on the YouTube video, it's good for the algo. It's good for us. I can keep doing these for free. So appreciate it. Okay, let's get into some best ball questions here. Casey asked me, shout out to Casey, who's a really good sub, always active during the shows. We playfully give you shit for the Paramin look in B best ball mania, but you clearly identified the spot for Cephas. Knowing what you know now with that spot and other similar situations, have you identified tweaks that you could make next year to the projections? So what Casey's talking about, we were really high on Brashad Paramin for much of the off season. And a lot of that was due to the opportunity presented to him for the Dallas receiving core. There wasn't much there. Thought he was going to get a lot of targets. I think we ran bad on Perriman in the sense that he was given guaranteed money. And I, I thought he was like a talented player. And, you know, he had some injury stuff and stuff. And it was really surprising to see it go down as poorly as it went down. On the flip side, there always is a danger of playing players like Perriman, who, like I said, I thought he was talented. That's like, you know, relative to his production in the past. He clearly was not, you know, an established wide receiver one by any means. And when we're throwing volume at a guy's just because it's there, there's always this risk that, you know, they're just not talented and they're not going to earn it. And that's what happened with Perriman between health and, and skill. He just, wasn't good enough. It didn't matter how much available opportunity was there. If you don't have the talent, you're not going to be able to make use of it. So there's always this dilemma of matching talent versus opportunity. So I think what we could do in cases like that in the future where there's so much available volume is just like be even more conservative and spread it out to the different bodies that can get there. 
Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. The thing I think we did right on Paramin is we did update for the market as it went on where we were way ahead of market to start the off season. And as we accounted for ADP and whatnot, you know, we realized we were too aggressive. And over time, you know, we came back towards the market a little bit. And if you're drafting lots of these teams, it's one of those things where I think you just want to be cognizant of your overall exposures. And it's a fine line because sometimes when you're way ahead of market, you don't know how long that's going to last and you want to pound that edge for as long as you possibly can. There are, and we saw that with some of the players we were high on where we got really good discounts early in the draft season. And if we didn't take advantage of them then, then we weren't drafting those players at the end of draft season because the ADP changed so much. The flip side is you know, sometimes that ADP, like in the case of Paramins, never changes. And now we're looking at 25% Paramin exposure. And it's like, do we really want that? So I do think you just want to be like thoughtful on the type of bet you're making and, and how much exposure you get. And as you feel through these drafts, just kind of knowing when you can take the player, when it's worth the risk and when it's, something that you can easily sort of shovel off. So Perriman's the type of player that in the future, I will be overweight on the field again, but I will probably do it a little bit more gradually, you know, given just understanding the uncertainty of the situation, the type of player he is, and understanding the reason he ranks well is this volume void for a team that's not projected to be good. And there's just, you know, a decent bit of variance when it comes to that. Bruce Forster asked, is it possible to quantify, model the opportunity cost of taking your first QB in best ball in X round? Would like to understand the trade-offs. I know there's some common wisdom, but can we quantify it? Yeah, for Bruce, I, I would point you towards an article on Establish the Run that we did on best ball construction. I think it's tough to quantify in terms of like projected points and whatnot, but if you look at the win rates on best ball historically, you can kind of see that taking a quarterback early in the first four, five rounds just hasn't been worth it. You know, the win rates are poor on those. Then you start to hit that sweet spot around six to 10 and the win rates a lot better. And then if you wait outside the top 10, it's not. Um, But it's, it is hard to directly quantify that in general though. And what we did last year is we really tried to feel pockets of the draft. And I think we saw after that four five turn where like T Higgins, Adam Thielen were going, things got real dicey in the player pool. And we started to see, in my opinion, I started to see some wide receivers get pushed up almost too early to where like at certain points, you know, Robbie Anderson, Chase Claypool, Brandon Ayuk started to go mid fifth because the player pool just dropped off. People wanted their wide receivers. And I get it. We're very pro wide receiver heavy. And I, I had all three of those guys at a decent clip. Don't get me wrong. I'm not singling out those guys specifically. I just thought the cost started to get too high. And that's a point where I'm like, okay, the opportunity cost for the skill players is obviously dead end. You know, we, we've dropped down a tier at wide receiver pretty significantly. We're in the dead zone of running backs. This is where I'm going to prioritize, you know, the elite onesie positions a little bit more. Because if you think through the 2v2s of the quarterback I'm drafting now and the wide receiver I can get in round seven, it's not a huge difference at this point in time. So that's when I was really willing to start grabbing quarterbacks. So I was mostly out on Mahomes because he went too early, but you could get some Lamar every now and then, some Allen, some Kyler, some Dak at that 5-6 turn. I also drafted a ton of TJ Hawkinson, a ton of Mark Andrews there for a similar reason. 
So a little bit of a feel thing. It is tough to quantify, Bruce. And then T-Strack Best Ball UK says, how much attention do you pay to your best ball rosters in season? Any particular marks you hope they hit by certain points? Honestly, the biggest thing I'm watching for is I'm just kind of trying to understand what's moving the needle each week just so that I hopefully grasp like intuitively a little bit like what went well, what didn't. For example, when Mark Andrews went off the last few weeks, saw a huge increase in my best ball teams in Kyle Pitts. So like, again, I was taking those tight ends at the five, six turn. That makes sense. I'm trying to like understand what's moving the needle on my teams. I'm also really interested to see the difference in my advance rates from the start of bye weeks through the end of bye weeks. So I feel like my edge is in roster construction and I think I'm better prepared to handle the bye weeks in the field. So I'm interested to see if that actually comes to fruition. You know, we have a bye mageddon this week, week seven. But in general, I'm not like looking at certain points or like certain levels of advance rates. I want, you know, I'm just hoping that come the end of the the regular season in best ball mania. And I did some FFPC teams that my advance rate is higher than you would expect based on average. That's, that's kind of my goal there. And I hope some of those teams look like monster teams, but best ball mania, I did 65 teams in the best ball mania, two out of 12 advance. So that's an expected advance of you know, about just shy of 11 teams. Right now, I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I have 17 teams advancing. So that's about 50% higher than average. I'm kind of hoping that sticks. I'd be really happy if that stuck. Okay, now the important questions, the landscaping questions. Jeremy Nelson asks me, how did you talk your wife into letting you hire a lawn care company? I enjoy mowing the lawn and hate everything else about it. I kind of like mowing the lawn, but not not really, if I'm being honest. Uh, what? So the talking my wife into it was pretty easy because she knows that I'm lazy and I was not going to do it properly. It wasn't going to look good. It was going to be stressful on everyone. And it was really easy that our best friends own a landscape company. So that that was pretty easy, Jeremy. But dude, time is money. Like I, for, for me, I would much rather pay someone to do a really good job, have our house look good. And of course, you have to be fortunate enough to have that income to be able to pay someone to do stuff. I know not everyone's in that situation, but if you do... Like, I'm not trying to penny pinch here. I'd much rather have, again, I have it look nice, a lot less time off my plate, supporting a friend's local business in the process. There's less stress, less tension between me and my wife because there's no like, hey, did you mow the lawn yet? Or anything like that. So, uh, but when anything breaks around the house, honestly, my wife's way more handier than I am at fixing anything. I'm a complete idiot. I would not survive alone. People would rip me off all the time because I'd pay them to fix things and have no idea how much it should cost. Uh, Zach asks, have you ever considered moving to an area out west with water restrictions so you don't have to have a lawn with grass? Zach, buddy, do want to move out west. Trying to convince Levitan to tell my wife that it's a mandatory company policy for us to be living in Colorado. And I think that's the only chance I have at getting her to move out there. So, uh, 
But I like have I do like having a lawn. I don't like taking care of it, but I like having one. Uh, I do like to smell the grass, despite what Silva's propaganda would make you think otherwise. And then my final question we have here is from my buddy Reezy Club, who asks me, do you remember what happened when Chris Jericho and John Cena wrestled in 2008? So my buddy Reezy is a huge wrestling fan, and we went to this live wrestling event in Buffalo in 2008. I don't remember too much of it, but I will say like live wrestling, like even if you're not into the WWE and like all the drama and like the scripted reality TV that it basically is, man, it is, it is fun live to kind of get into it. The crowd is like super pumped, you know, half the people there think it's real and it's a good time, but I may have gotten a little aggressive at this, this Chris Jericho, John Cena match in which I somewhat obnoxiously yelled at a little kid that just happened when Chris Jericho upset John Cena because everybody loved John Cena. He was like the good guy they were all cheering for. So I might've made a, a little kid cry at a wrestling event, but you know, you win some, you lose some, we get better. We live to see another day. All right. Thanks everybody for tuning into this Q and a got a couple really good shows lined up in the next couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to have Joe Holka on talk to him he does tilt space with us. We build teams together, talk to him about how he plays. I play more on DraftKings than FanDuel. I do play on both, but I do like to get someone with a bit more FanDuel expertise. And also I want to talk to Joe about just like his edge and like carving out a role in the industry. He's done such a good job at figuring out what matters in terms of content production and making all this stuff look really good and, and, and carving out a role for him. So I'm interested to pick his brain on that front. And then in two weeks, two weeks, Lord Reeves, Rich Rebar is going to be on the show, which I'm pumped to have Reeves on. I was DMing with him. We were both saying how we like somehow have never done any content with each other. He's over at Sharp Football Analysis. So really excited to talk to Reeves just about his edge in general. one One of the sharper people in the industry. So I'm pretty pumped about that. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Again, rate, review us on iTunes if you're listening to the podcast. Subscribe if you are listening on YouTube. Like the video. Really appreciate it.